and that is on page 
understand why things as they are. When life just seems to be kind of weighing us, when we experience some of the things we've just sung about in that song, we're losing strength. When you find yourself in a tight spot and things don't seem to be working out as you'd like them, why this? Why now? Why me? What are you doing about it? Why won't you step in and sort them out? Psalm 10 begins with just that question, doesn't it? You sense the abandonment, the bewilderment in the sort of voice of the writer, the speaker. Why, Lord? Do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why? I'm not saying God doesn't exist, is he? But he's pretty bewildered by the fact that, well, God's apparently inactive in this situation. He doesn't seem to be moving. He doesn't seem to be working. He doesn't seem to be coming through for me. I guess, as you look back on life, maybe even this evening, walking through some of the stuff that some of you are walking through, I question why. Well, we relate to it, don't we? We prayed. We trusted. We believe that God is who he says he is. We believe that on the one hand, God is all-powerful. He can do all things. And we believe, on the other hand, that God is a God who is described as love. God is love. He cares for all that he's made. He has compassion for his people. And if those two things could come together, God's power and awesome majesty and ability to, to do anything, and his love for all that he's made, why, God, are you not coming through for me when I need you to? How come? We're left asking this question over and over again. Why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself? The psalmist really is addressing one of the bigger questions of life, if you put it like this. is why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Now, we often see bad things happening to good people, don't we? You sometimes wonder why some families seem to go through so much trauma or loss. Some people seem to go through so many hardships in their life and other people seem to skip through life as if charmed and they don't seem to be ever touched by anything too major. But the writer of this psalm is grappling with that opposite problem. Why do good things happen to bad people? Verses 2 to 11 at length describe an arrogant, wicked, boastful, proud, abusive person. And what makes it worse, <laughs> there don't seem to be any consequences to their actions. They seem to be getting away scot-free. Scan down if you've got a Bible in front of you on an app or in a, uh, in a book. Just look from verses 2 to 11 with me. Look how they're described. They're described as proud, as arrogant, as untouchable. Verse 2, in his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. Verse 4, in his pride, he doesn't seek God. Verse, four, uh, verse 6, he says to himself, nothing's ever going to shake me. No one's ever going to do me harm. Nothing can touch me. I'm going to get away with it. They're foul-mouthed and deceitful. Verse 3, they're boasting about the cravings of their heart, the things they're going to do and the way they're going to enrich themselves. In verse 7, their mouths are full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under their tongue. You can't trust a word they say. And yet they seem to be getting away with it. They are greedy, aren't they? You've seen that in verse 3. They boast about the cravings of their heart and bless the greedy and revile the Lord, enriching themselves and impoverishing the poor. Verse 9, they're like a lion lying in wait to catch the helpless. They catch the helpless, they drag them off in their nets. And they're violent, and they're abusive. Verses 8 to 10 describe them as they, they, they 
lay in wait, they catch them, and the victims are crushed and collapse and fall under their strength. And at the heart of it is this fact. The fact is that they are God's gifts. They have no second thought to God. They, they don't give a thought to him. Verse 3, the second part of it, they revile the Lord. Verse 4, the same. In all their thoughts, there is no room for God. And again, as we get to verse 11, they say to themselves, God, he won't resist. He covered his face and he never sees. We can relate to all that far too easily, can't we? Sad to be in our day. Our news feeds are full of these kinds of people. It's 564 days today since Putin ordered his troops into Ukraine. And a year and a half ago, 18 months ago or so, we were all horrified, weren't we? We were just, just heartbroken and horrified and the, the, the sheer scale of what was going on for no apparent reason. We prayed, we, we had prayer meetings here, we met in, in groups, we prayed in our home groups, we prayed up here on a Sunday that the Lord would bring an end to that and bring peace. And here we are, a year and a half later going on. It's Wednesday this week, 17 people killed by an airstrike on that market town. You know Zelensky's comment then? These are people who have done nothing wrong. You know what he means, don't you? They're innocent victims of what? An arrogant, wicked man lies in wait for his enemies, for the helpless, who sneers at his enemies and says to himself, God will never notice, there'll be no consequences. I spent some time this week reading about some of the cases being compared and heard at the International Criminal Court in The Hague this week. If you want to depress yourself this week, spend a few minutes flicking through warlords and dictators charged with the most horrific crimes. Al-Bashir was the former president of Sudan. He's charged with five counts crimes against humanity. Murder, extermination, forcible transfer, torture and rape, two counts of war crimes, intentionally directing attacks against civilians, or against civilians not taking part in hostilities, pillaging, three counts of genocide, by killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm, and by deliberately inflicting on each target group conditions of life calculated to bring about that group's physical destruction in Darfur in Sudan. I say on and on it goes. And you start reading and you start looking. And do you know what the hardest thing about reading those case reports was? In so many cases, case after case after case, charges are brought, the charge sheet is drawn up, but the arrest warrant is still outstanding. The people are still at large. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Will there never be justice? We know it close to home as well, don't we? We know because we prayerfully support organisations here back home in the UK that, that are working in these sort of areas. We know the issue of human trafficking, of modern day slavery, of violence against women and children, the abuse of power in whatever setting that might be, county lines, drug networks, blighting the lives of families and the schools that we know about and we're involved with. It's not just something in faraway places. It's in the lives of people we know, it's in the lives of people here in Port Seymour. That's why it's so good and right that we as a church support and pray for and work in organisations like the IJM, International Justice Ministry, strengthen the justice system around the world, trying to protect people from slavery and from violence. Well, we've loved working with and praying for Louise and the work that she does at Azalea in Luton, working with women caught up in the sex trade and the prayer that they'll be able to be something done here in Bedford on the streets as well. That's why next Sunday we're having a safeguarding focus that we can ensure that we, church care well for the vulnerable.
Well, Psalm, Psalm 10, these first 11 verses, don't want you to be naive. <laughs> they don't want you to be naive about the reality of evil's presence and its impact. And you're meant to feel the weight of verses 1 to 11. And Bob sums everything here. Goodness me, it's a bit heavy. But yes, Psalm 10 is heavy, isn't it? We're meant to feel the weight pressing us down, its presence, its impact. People were singing this psalm. We're very much in a mind of evil. And in the face of such evil, verse 1 is a valid question, a valid cry. God can take it. Why, Lord? We should cry out to him. Why? And if the psalm ended at verse 11, I'm not sure we'd ever make sense of the world we live in. If it just drew to an end there, well, the world we live in would be pretty bleak, hopeless, dark place. Because that sort of unresolved tension what it makes for great films and great TV and great drama. It's not so great if you're on the sharp end of it. There is good news in Psalm 10. And it's this. God sees, God hears, and God will act. Talk about that drama um, that we, we enjoy, you know, great films, great TV dramas. Have you seen the films Taken? I think it's three of them now. How one man can lose his daughter so many times. Uh, is beyond me. But it was uh, Liam Neeson, the special agent whose daughter's kidnapped, and you know the, the tension ramps up, and you wonder, is she ever going to be rescued? Will he ever find her? He's got this famous speech that's become a, a meme and a gif and all that sort of thing all over your social media. I won't try and do a Liam Neeson impression. Well, I might. No, I won't. Um, I don't know who you are. He says, I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. What I do have is very <laughs> what you can do, what I do have, are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I'll not look for you, I will not pursue you, but if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. I will kill you. And that's his promise to the kidnapper. Now, I'm not sure if you let her go now, that'll be the end of it. That's not justice, but hey, we'll just let that drive for a minute. But as we get to this point in Psalm 10, verse 12, it's almost as if the psalmist has come to his senses. He remembers who it is he's praying to. It's almost like he's been sort of drawn into the same trap as the godless man. Oh, God won't notice. God won't see. God doesn't act. God won't hear. But he suddenly sort of comes to his senses. In verse 14, you God do see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief. You take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the Father. So as he gets to that point, and he's reminded of who God is, he prays with a renewed confidence and a renewed certainty, remembering who it is that he prays to. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. He prays for both the afflicted, doesn't he? But he also prays for the oppressor. You see how he prays for him? Verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked man, call me evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. What's he saying? Restrain his power. Restrict. End his ability, his power to cause havoc, to cause such suffering. Again, valid prayer. Lord, break his arms. We can pray that for the dictators and the despots around the world. Lord, break their arms. Cease their power, wind in their strength. Have you noticed, even as those prayers begin to be offered, when the voice of the wicked man is already silent, it's beginning a little 
which man, why does he revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me? Having said there is no God, he's now saying, prayers are doing and starting to even in that wickedness have an impact. You'll notice a couple of things. Do we ever get a resolution to the problem of evil in this psalm? Well, let's say that in the psalm. No, we don't. Do we get an answer to the why question? Why do you stand far off? No. There's no reason given in the psalm text. Is justice done? Not in this psalm. How long do we have to wait for resolution? I don't know. We don't know. And sometimes what Psalm 10 is telling us is that that question may well have to be asked over and over again until we see God face to face. It may not be seen in this life. Some people wait a lifetime for justice, don't they? The, the victims of the Hillsborough disaster waited 30 years to see justice. And just last year, a former Nazi prison guard who was aged 101 years old was found guilty and sentenced as an accessory to murder at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp over 70 years later. Sometimes justice takes decades. Sometimes it never comes. Verses 12 to 18 are very clear. Because the Lord is king forever and ever, he holds ultimate power. Not the evil man who says there's no room for God, who, verse 18, is described as just a mere earthly mortal who will never again strike terror. We can be confident of justice and release for those who are oppressed. But there are no easy answers. We may not see the result in this life, but the confidence that comes, comes from knowing that God has seen, God has heard. And he's answered in the past, and we can trust him to do so again because he is king. Has his character changed? No, of course it's not. Has his word changed? No, of course it hasn't. We can rely on it. The why may not get answered. I don't know why, but I'll still trust him. And I'll trust him with even greater confidence because of the ultimate act of wickedness and treachery that was committed. And when that ultimate act of wickedness and evil and treachery was committed, God did come true. Who did you read yourself into this psalm as? As it was read, as Lucy came up earlier on and read it in, how, how did you read yourself in? Did you read yourself in as one of the little people? I bet you did, because I did when I started reading the psalm. I thought, oh yeah, we're the weak, we're the oppressed, we're the ones who haven't got any power, we've got no authority. We're the weak. I've got bad news for you. And of course, that's not only who we are. Well, we are that sometimes, we're kind of both at the same time. We are on the scene enemy. Hint here in this psalm are that we live like the man who's described in verse 4, not seeking God. We live like those in verse 11 who say, we're going to get away with this. Those little sins that nobody else sees, God will never know. God will never see how I've responded, how I've behaved, how I've reacted. God covers his face, he'll never see. And verse 13 as well, he won't call me to account. That describes our heart. We push God out of our thoughts and out of our, our minds and out of our lives. And the New Testament actually makes it even clear. This is where we get the, the real sort of punch, if you like. You've got a Bible, you can turn to Romans chapter 3, and it will come up on the screen as well. Listen to the verses in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul is saying, 
in this section of this letter in the New Testament, everybody is a sinner. All have fallen under the power of sin, he says, as it is written in verse 10. And then he goes on to list clauses which are drawn from the Psalms in the Old Testament, one after the other after the other. So he's quoting from the Old Testament in various ways, saying there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Poison of vipers is on their lips. And then when he gets to verse 14, it's a direct quote from our psalm, psalm 10. Psalm 10, verse 7, he says, Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul is doing in the New Testament is taking Psalm 10, the psalm we're looking at together this evening, using it to point the finger at you and me and say that we all stand guilty before God. As being this evil man who pushes God out of their feet. We are the ones who are in danger of being ones faced with verse 15 of having our arms broken and being called to account for our own. So as we come to the end of verse 10, we will try and draw this together. And as we move towards the Lord's table, and Adam comes and takes us in a moment, we move towards the table together to take bread and wine. What is it that we're doing as we go there? Well, bizarrely, we're remembering the most heinous act of evil and pride and unhappiness on our part that ever took place. God can give us an answer to the why, but he sends a solution to the problem. He sends a solution to the problem. So that in verse 14, we can be those who commit ourselves to the one who is the helper of the fatherless. The Almighty God, the one who is Lord forever and ever, sends the holy, perfect, spotless Son of God, who so loved, believe it or not, proud, wicked, arrogant, godless people. And also, so loves helpless, grief stricken, and oppressed people that he chose to come among himself. Jesus Christ came and lived Psalm 10 in every little detail. Read through it again and think of the life of Jesus. He lived it as the innocent victim of evil. He lived it and was ambushed in a garden. He was dragged off. He was put on trial. He experienced the greatest miscarriage of justice ever as he was sentenced to death on the cross. He knew what it was to pray, verse 1, not in those words, but with an even greater sense, an even deeper sense of loss and abandonment. He went to the cross and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God wasn't just far off behind him, but he was forsaken. And in that moment, what did Jesus do? Well, we're told again in the New Testament. He entrusted himself to one who does judge justly. One who says there will be an answer to evil. I'm going to read you some of my favourite verses from the New Testament. And this is 1, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 onwards. Um, so this you recall, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. See the description of the innocent son. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no mistakes. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's the example we follow. We don't understand. We don't get it. We don't know why. We bring ourselves and entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly.
good distance and comes back and meets us in London. We're both perpetrator and victim at the same time. Our only hope is to trust the one who does see, the one who hears, the one who acted at the cross, the one who acted to bring us eternally close to him. And until we see him face to face, would God help us to walk by faith?